This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Auth0, authentication made simple for developers. Modern authentication and identity can be hard, but Auth0 makes it easy. With Auth0, you can enable login with any social provider, have multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, and passwordless login all at the flip of a switch. Find out how to add authentication to your Angular 1 or 2 app in under 10 minutes at Auth0.com forward slash Angular. Welcome to Angular Air. This is Jeff Welpley, and I am extremely happy to be on live right now because it just took us the past 10 minutes of Google Hangout hell um, trying to get up and live. Uh, but we finally are. Uh, so uh, no one who is actually trying to watch on the regular link will actually see us, um, but we will record this and uh, send it out later. So... We do have a great show in store for today. We're going to be talking about Angular 2 in the enterprise, and uh, also talk a little bit about Angular 1 as well, obviously. Um, but before we get started, I want to give uh, two quick shout-outs. One to John Papa and Dan Whalen and their training course in Fort Lauderdale. If you don't already have tickets for November 4th and 5th, definitely go to ng-learn.com. And also, Angular Up is having in Israel... Um, that actually should be pretty cool. They're going to do a tour of the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, in addition to having a bunch of awesome speakers like um, Yuri Goldstein, Ben Lesh, uh, Pavel, Tracy, Taro, basically all everybody you could think of out there. So definitely check that out at angular-up.com. All right. Hey, we have a great panel of people with a wide variety of different um, backgrounds, actually, in using Angular and Angular 2 in the enterprise. Um, so I want to kind of go around everybody and, and uh, give an intro to yourself and uh, let us know a little bit about your experience with Enterprise. And Gary, let's start off with you. Okay. My name is uh, Gary Treepine, and I'm a solution architect at uh, BMC Software. We're an independent systems vendor. We sell systems management type software for a lot of different uh, types of platforms. And uh, I'm in the uh, Z platform, formerly known as Mainframe uh, line of business. And uh, I'm project lead for uh, a new generation of user interfaces based on Angular 2 uh, for our existing products. And so uh, it's, um, you can probably tell by my hair color, I've been through a few user interface technologies in my life, and uh, it gets more fascinating every time. I actually do find it um, really interesting, this sort of um, overlap of some of the legacy technologies, you know, mainframes that are larger organizations and uh, throwing some of these more modern interfaces on top of it. There's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on there. So and we'll, we'll definitely dive into some of that during the course of this show. Um, Newt, uh, Newt Tran, uh, who used to work with me at Wells Fargo, uh, is also on the show. So Newt, why don't you give an introduction to yourself? Uh, hi, uh, my name is New Tran, and like as Jeff said, I work for Wells Fargo. Um, currently, I'm in the midst of, well, a lot of Angular 1 projects, and we're currently, you know, upgrading similar types of legacy systems up to um, more modern interfaces, and um, kind of held back on Angular 2 until the release, so now we're seriously investigating that. 
Cool. And, uh, you know, uh, it's not like uh, you're about to go to sleep. You know, you got to think in terms of like, like you're about to go for like one of your Ironman races. Like if you guys don't know, uh, Newt runs in these like hundred mile races in the desert that, that uh, you hear about. Uh, it's or, or like maybe like over the course of like three days. I don't know. He, he's pretty crazy about that. Um, so you got to like and uh, everything is, is exciting when, when you uh, talk about it uh, with uh, elevated as if you just finished one of those races, right? All right, here. Okay. Uh, so let's go through the panelists, too, and just talk a little bit uh, about some what you guys have experienced um, with implementing Angular Enterprise. Uh, Austin, how about you first? Yeah, I'm Austin McDaniel. I currently work at uh, Swimlane. We have a uh, cybersecurity automation platform, and um, we've got about... 80,000 lines of Angular 1 code, and all of our new stuff, we're writing Angular 2. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Very cool. And uh, Justin? Yeah, I'm Justin Schwarzenberg. I work at uh, SoCreate. We're building a screenwriting platform uh, all on Angular 2 stuff, and it's a software as a service. And we prior to that, we did some development for uh, custom development for client application, like a ERP system, order management, customer management stuff, uh, started a rewrite of that application. Used to be a, a PHP uh, full stack application, and we moved to uh, a API for that and a front, a new front end that we started in Angular 1 uh, early on, alpha stuff. Went through that, uh, actually rewrote it in Angular 2, um, actually Angular 2 early alpha, and now we're in Angular 2 on that thing. Very cool. Okay, what about you, Mr. GDE Mike Brocky? <laughs> uh, my name is Mike Brocky. I'm a uh, architect at CEI out of Pittsburgh, and I am also a contributor to the Angular CLI. So that's where I spend a lot of my open source time is uh, contributing to the Angular CLI. So hopefully, people get use out of that. And then uh, Olivier Cohn. Yeah. Hey guys. Um, so I work in a startup uh, in Lyon. Uh, in France, and we do a lot of analytics. Uh, so we use Angular to display um, a lot of our data to, to our clients, and we use D3 uh, for graphs. So a bit like what Austin is doing as well. Um, so we mix, yeah, we, we're mixing uh, bo- both frameworks uh, a lot. Yeah. And we had uh, everything in Angular 1, for a long time, um, I managed to convince my team to move to Angular 2. So. Yeah, we just released two weeks ago. Yeah, part, um, part of what we're going to talk about on the sh- today's show is that sort of decision and how you kind of get your team on board and everything like that. Um, before we get to that, uh, panel member, uh, guest panelist for today who has not been on the show before, uh, Mahul. So, Mahul, why don't you uh, let us know a little bit about uh, your background? Cool, yeah. Um, I'm Mahul Patel. Um, I work with Angular class. We, we do um, Angular training and as well as consulting. And um, so, yeah, um, in terms of enterprise experience, um, currently we're consulting with Hearst Media right now. Um, they're transitioning kind of their websites from the LAMP stack to mean stack, including Angular 2. So we're helping, we're helping their teams over there in Atlanta right now working on that. Cool. Thank you very much. Okay, so I want to start off today's discussion talking about the challenges 
the, the things that are hard about trying to introduce any new, and we'll, we'll get into, you know, Angular, the specifics of Angular 2, but, you know, I'm curious, Gary, you know, uh, you said, you mentioned how you pre- previously and, and for a long time, BMC was focused on sort of legacy technologies, right? So on something more in the modern stack, any new technology, how does that actually gain um, your know, traction within your organization? Well, it's a, it's a kind of a complicated process and, you um, you have to look at the human dynamics as much as you do the uh, the software dynamics and the technological issues. And I'll give an example from 15 years ago when we went from the old classic green screen character mode user interfaces to our products to a Java desktop application with all the graphical tools and things like that. There were, there was some staunch resistance and. Um, what you have to do is you have to do a couple of things. One is you find some champions that will say, hey, this really works and will help convince the other people. And then, and this is the challenge, you've got to deliver. You've got to show a way where this actually makes their lives better. And when you get that person who is so resistant, say, hey, you know, I don't like graphical user interfaces, but I can do things a whole lot faster now with your tool. And, and yeah, I'm on board. So that's, that's kind of what you do. But you have to... Um, you, you have to find some adopters and you have to work with people. And it kind of depends on the organization and what the community is like and, and how long it's been since they've had change. And now we're doing the next generation as we go to, well, away from desktop applications to uh, pure web applications, hence uh, my involvement with Angular 2. And uh, obviously the hard work's been done already, but, uh, but it, you really have to pay attention to people, especially get a core group that's, uh, that's working with you. That's uh, you know, one of the things you got to remember, there's the, the people side can be just as hard as the technical side sometimes. Yeah, you definitely, you, it sounds like you need a champion, right? Like that's where it starts. Like the, the person who is the, the champion and then you need some adopters, uh, some, some people who are actually implementing stuff initially as sort of the trial basis and then show some success and kind of grow from there. So in the case of Angular, were, were you, Gary, were you the champion or were you actually one of the adopters and just kind of took it once somebody else uh, first introduced it? I was kind of one of the champions. And what we wanted to do was go through our next generation of user interfaces where we wanted to be totally um, totally web applications. And we had to decide what tool to use. Now, BMC is a really big company. And so we have different product divisions. And I was aware of one of our product areas. It's uh, the BMC TrueSight. It's like an operations management for distributed servers. Uh, had um, had implemented their user interface in um, in Angular one one x, and we took a close look at what they'd done and how they'd been able to do it, um, and then we went and did a um, a pilot um, application using Angular again the Angular one x, and we considered a few other things, but uh, but we were really impressed by Angular two, and we thought okay we are now just beginning a development cycle, so we have. Uh, some years or some time, not necessarily years, but we have some time before we have to field and we have to go up. We call it GA, general availability of our products. And so it is worth it for us to go ahead and jump on and take advantage of this and be able to ride this wave. So we uh, we chose, we elected at the beginning of the year to start developing in Angular 2. Uh, we're building, my team is building a, a bit of a framework and then we've got several hundred thousand lines of .NET business logic that we'll be converting to TypeScript and Angular 2 uh, as part of this effort that I'm working on. 
Um, so I really kind of pushed it, and it was very new. And it's kind of challenging because if you're the first one in the organization or one of the first ones using it, you don't have a resource base to go to. You don't have someone you can say, hey, what are the best set of tools for me to do this? And so you have to discover all those things yourself, and you have to build in, you know, resolution time. Okay, this was a bad path. We've got to walk up. We've got to walk back a little bit. Now we've discovered these things. Let's go down this path here. Um, so it, it, I was kind of the champion, and, but it really, we, we felt it was a no-brainer by the time we looked at our time frames and what was coming down the line with Angular 2. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was the best long-term decision for us. So one question I've got for you, how'd you get buy-in at, you know, such a large company of such something so new, you know, Jaws came out, you know, that's one of the bigger challenges to get buy-in at at these type of companies that are, you know, on brand, brand new things. Well, there's a couple of factors. And one factor is, is that I work for a software development company. And so there's lots of alpha developers and we do, PCs, we do servers, we do mainframes, we do blades. So there's a lot of technology churns staying ahead and learning about things. So I think in that case, we're already a kind of more advanced environment than, say, some other Fortune 500 uh, type organization that's going to be in banking or finance or manufacturing. So that's one edge up there. Um, and then a lot of us in different product teams were, were kind of focusing towards the same thing. We recognize a trend. Our customers say, hey, I don't want to install software on my PCs. And, and our users say, you know, I'm, I'm locked down under version control. I can't change anything on my configuration. So it was beginning to be, as a company, it was hurting our business case because someone had to be administrator to install our software before someone else could use it. So that was, we also had the impetus from the outside to help push that. Uh, the fact that uh, Angular One had done well in the organization, and uh, we had a proven product out of it, out of it, and then again with the promises of Angular Two, that that made it very easy. So I would say, in our case, it was a lot easier than some other organizations. Thankfully. Well, you mentioned that you were in the process. Part of part of what you're doing is converting uh, .NET code to Angular Two as well. So it was part of the um, factoring in the decision making, the fact that Angular two is sort of the way that they've set it up. You know, both um, pushing on TypeScript, a couple other things where it sort of lends itself to the job people with the Java and .NET backgrounds. Did that have any sort of uh, impact for your decision making? Yeah, it was icing on the cake. I mean, that was um, JavaScript is tough to develop in. Um, I I first developed in JavaScript 20 years ago when we're talking NCSA Mosaic and the first days of Mozilla and um, Apache server. And uh, it's, it's, it's a tough language to work with. And from a software investment standpoint, it really, um, yeah, I think there was a little discussion, side discussion before we started on the benefits and, disadvantage, and the disadvantages of, of, of strong typing. And for the long term, strong typing pays off. And so we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. So your team TypeScript? <laughs> <laughs> we we drank the Kool-Aid. We're doing type docs, the whole bit. Uh, it's just, to me, and to the rest of the team, it's like, why wouldn't you do it? Um, so we're, we're pretty pumped. Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, you work for a software company. It is different for things like 
tell us a little bit about uh, your background. You, you're working at a huge financial institution where, I, I mean, I know from our, our, our time there together, it was difficult to make the technologies that everybody was using. So how were you able to accomplish this at Wells Fargo? Um, um, well, I was able to... I was able to do this by basically be given a, a project where you know, it was a brand new product within the company. And this is an internal product, not an external product. So um, it was really great because at that point, um, it was more of a trying to get a product up and running pretty quickly. Um, it was kind of complex and for the users to use and and at that point you know we had most of our applications weren't even on um, MVC um, that's how you know old some of the internal systems are and you know I, I explored knockout and, and then I talked to you and you mentioned angular so I give that a shot and I built a proof of concepts for both and I ended up liking angular much better um, then the knockout, and I just kind of ran with that, and um, it was just fortunate enough that the application was small with um, room for growth, and that just led to other teams uh, adopting Angular, and it was pretty successful right off the bat. So, um, and it I guess decreased the time to code the user interface uh, as opposed to the regular JavaScript model. And now we have um, several, several projects using it. The unfortunate thing was that we developed that in uh, 2014. And so most of the projects now are, are in Angular 1. So we don't have the benefit of starting at Angular 2. And so now it's uh, anything that we'd have to do would be um, either a migration, which I'm doing on, and anything net new probably would be Angular 2. But, um, Right now, we're, we're in the conversion process. That's to actually get anything approved by the kind of security audit teams and that type of thing for new technology, or they, I know they focus a lot more on like the server setup and that type of thing, so maybe they didn't care, but did, did you have to actually go through anything like that? No. Um, I was pretty much given um, the okay to explore whatever I needed to explore. The, the harder part... <laughs> was, um, you know, working through the red tape of um, actually requisitioning resources such as servers and whatnot. Um, that part was probably more painful than, than de you know, developing with Angular or coming up or, or even just uh, getting the approval to use it. Well, I guess that's not necessarily specific to Angular you're talking about. That's just specific to, like, creating a new application in general. Um, that you have to like requisition hardware and that type of thing. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that that's that's true. Um, for this particular application, it, it came more of a business need, and so the timing was right for the development of that application, and then the uh, choice of what technology we wanted to go forward with. And then, what about uh, new for? The, from a people perspective, because part of it is, uh, you know, the making sure that it's okay with management to be able to utilize a new technology, but then you also have to get on board and, uh, well, even if they're on board, then you have to, they have to actually train, which 
some people are used to, you know, web developers, you know, especially people are used to open source. Um, but then there's a lot of people that have just worked, you know, potentially for a larger company for a long time that have only been using, you know, one legacy technology for 20 years. And that presents all sorts of other challenges. So did you guys have any problems as far as that goes? Or do you just segment the teams or how do you, how do you work with that? So we, um, well, what I did was I worked closely with the lines of businesses that uh, were, I guess, the initial stakeholders for the application. And we walked through screen design and um, how they wanted to use the product, uh, their, 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 flow, their workflow, I guess. Um, and I guess what, you know, what you guys probably have to do, you list the requirements and you try to figure out, uh, you know, what are their pain points, and and through that work, it was it took you know many 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 meetings to work that out. And um, you know, as we were going in through Dev, we invited some of the uh, stakeholders to take a look and, and play around with it. And as they were going through QA, they would give you know more um, more input and feedback on usability uh, as we were going along and. Um, you know, they, they seemed to like it as it went into production and, and the, at least the major, I guess the managers or the team, the team leads of the, uh, the lines of businesses, they were familiar enough at, by that point to give effective training. And, and then it got big enough at that point for, um, another business or a line of business team to be created, uh, to support the application, um, and, and perform the training and, and come up with, uh, um, any or resolve any user issues with the application, but they've been giving uh, a steady feedback on the usability of the application. Been a, a good relationship with them. Now you, you've mentioned training a few times. How did you go about finding uh, training uh, with a technology as new as Angular Two is? Uh, is there any uh, resources that you went out or had trouble finding, or talk talk about the training aspect a little bit? Are you talking about um, for developers or for the users? Uh, developers. Um, users are usually well-versed in uh, using the browser, so. Yeah. Um, so at, when I first created the application, it was, you know, it's Angular 1.2, I think. And uh, the documentation was lacking a lot. So I think I used uh, the egg, Egghead I.O., um, online classes to get familiar and, and a lot of uh, stack exchange at that point. And I've grown envious of the, tra the, the documentation over the past couple of years with Angular 1 and now Angular 2. So there was not very much um, going in when I first started. Developers hopped on, got better. So um, I sent them over to Egghead.io and, and uh, the documentation. And uh, I think at that time we had Pearl site subscriptions. So sent them over there too. But it was much easier. It was a better learning curve for the next set of developers working on the application for sure. Very true. As products uh, mature, the training materials also do uh, mature as well. We're going to break for a moment for a message from Angular class. <laughs> This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Angular Class. If you're looking to learn the latest and greatest in modern web development techniques, or you need Angular 2 training, then sign up today at angularclass.com. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. 
Mahul, so I, I'm actually curious. You guys have uh, been at a couple bigger organizations where you've had to come in and, and implement Angular 2, I think sometimes for the first time. So is it mostly you guys implement something and uh, the team takes it from there, or is, like, part of your job in most of these cases, like, because we're talking about training, like, actually going through the training process as well with everyone? So um, for the first couple kind of um, – Training, training kind of events we've done with bigger companies, it's kind of been just kind of going through curriculum and kind of step-by-step step teaching the fundamentals because a lot of these teams actually have very minimal JavaScript experience to begin with. But um, kind of um, with our current clients, um, they've actually started building out Angular 2, an Angular 2 product. And then um, for like the first week when we came through, we kind of just did a kind of an audit of kind of their code base on what kind of works, what doesn't work and just doing kind of like pull request reviews and stuff and kind of just doing a lot of pair programming with a lot of their developers and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, it's kind of been a mixed bag for us with Angular class, with working with kind of like banks and media companies, just kind of trying to tailor to what they need. Um, the biggest kind of challenge is, I guess, just, I mean, kind of just the fundamentals of um, Angular 2 being components rather than being... Um, you know, just kind of more traditional MVC, so kind of teaching that kind of paradigm. I'm curious, actually, for, for everybody on the panel, like, uh, you kind of thought is that because of the way that Angular 2 is set up, that um, people coming from more enterprise background, the, the Java and .NET sides of the world, that there, it's easier to train them with Angular 2 than once you get past, like, the build tooling stuff than Angular 1. Have have you guys found that to be the case, or or do you guys think that's not, uh, or you think it's just as hard? Anyone have any opinion? I think it's a uh, yeah. Uh, I've uh, talked to a couple developers um, that have gone through Angular two training, and they've had very minimal exposure to the Angular one stuff, and they they take it to they take to it really quickly, I mean, much faster than the learning curve for Angular one. Now that's opposite. If you've done Angular one and then have to hop over the Angular two, then it takes take some unlearning, and that I've experienced that too. Justin, what were you going to say? I think it's a, a little bit challenging for people for Angular two with the architecture side of things. So picking up concepts and, and understanding how to uh, create components and stuff like that is pretty straightforward and a little bit easier than the Angular one world. Uh, but then when it comes down to like architecting features, uh, tools in the app and how many times do you componentize things and how do you tie that stuff together? I think that became a little more complicated, but I think it from that other side in terms of like looking at something like .NET or something and coming from that background, it's potentially a little bit easier because you have things like dependency injection and services and you, you kind of probably have already developed in, in that manner in the .NET um, world that then you can kind of translate that, that knowledge to, okay, I'm just doing that in this web space. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, that's the, what I, the sense I get from the people I talk to, but I, I've never seen like actual statistics on that. Uh, that's necessarily uh, true in all cases. Um, okay. I, you know, so getting back to one thing that we had talked about earlier, Gary, so <clears throat> You mentioned uh, that you do have legacy technologies and, you know, a lot of the newer stuff that you're building. Uh, is it typically isolated between the two or are, are you actually building kind of integrations where you have your legacy mainframe backend with your Angular 2 app kind of as the, the front face of that? 
there's a couple of flavors to that answer. So with uh, one of our product lines is actually it takes data from a mainframe, but the driving server is a Windows platform. And that was a, a Silverlight application that we are basically porting to, uh, to Angular. It's a uh, very complex financial costing, data center costing analysis program. And uh, hence, we've got, uh, so we're developing brand new stuff that's going to be the user interface and the controls and sort of like a, uh, uh, a set of containers with which you can use for building applications. So common methods for toolboxes and tab paints. Think of like an Eclipse kind of toolkit or something like that, that that's there in Angular. And then we're going to be tying that in with uh, business logic code that's going to be ported over from .NET um, for, the, for the analysis, the, the data entry, the different forms and specifications that have to get entered in. So in our case, it's a little bit of both. I actually have so many questions on what you just said. So first of all, you have a Silverlight application? Well, like I said, we're, we're a huge company, and we have lots of different products, and we use lots of different technologies. And, yes, the writing is on the wall, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but I, Yeah, it's, it's just super interesting. Like, I, I, uh, I, I know that it was a thing like a while ago, but it's uh, actually kind of cool to see that uh, it must have taken some effort for you guys to like keep to ma- maintaining it, you know, um, the past like couple years because there's not that great of support out there, right? No, and, and we've had to develop some of our own tools and some of our own components to make the product satisfy our customers' needs. So uh, that's um, like a second or third tier benefit we're hoping to see with Angular 2 is that we can move into something that's a little bit more active and, and, uh, and, and has a much longer uh, lifespan ahead of it. Yes. Yes. I, okay. And then, oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, back to. I'm sorry. So the the other thing I was going to ask is that, um, so with regard to the integration to the mainframe, like, how do you set things up with the actual connection from your Angular two app? What the, what are the pieces that go into that? Because I, I do just coming from that background, some people might not find that interesting, but there are some like actually hard technical challenges there. Um, because it's not like uh, I think we're spoiled a little bit in the web world today of like kind of being able to hook everything up through just like uh, you know basic REST calls and everything like that, and uh, you don't really have that um, on the mainframe side. So, how did you guys go about creating that sort of connectivity from back to front? Um, there's a there's a whole range of different things now. In um, so I gave you the one flavor with the Silverlight application and a Windows server. Let me give you another flavor with another product I'm working on. And we actually have legacy products um, running in different places and customers' um, enterprises that have been traditionally silos. And they had their own proprietary APIs and network protocols. Uh, Sometimes they were binary APIs. Sometimes there were network protocols. And so uh, we had to do something a little bit special with them. Now, um, the last thing we wanted to do was make our user interface so incredibly complicated because if I'm talking to this application, I have to do this protocol. If I have to do this, I have to do that protocol. And some of them would have been pretty difficult to, to implement in Angular anyway. So what we do in this case is we have a middle tier server and, um, and we are, we're working with, uh, um, uh, give me a second. We're doing, working with Tomcat And so we have a very neutral interface from the user interface to Tomcat. We are using REST because, hey, it makes sense. It's right there. It's the easiest thing for that platform. But then in the background, 
we've got uh, drivers and adapters talking to all of our different uh, legacy apps, and they'll go ahead and, and, and thankfully we have giant, we have Java clients for most of those. And so we have these modules that load in, they're sort of bridges or adapters so that you can have a sort of a um, application neutral request when you're talking to, when the uh, user interface, the Angular app is talking to the server, the, the, the Homecat server, um, it doesn't care whether it was this product or that product or whatever its native interface is. It's just making a request, and we've got those all documented. Then behind the scenes, there's a piece of software that maps that into the particular proprietary protocol that that product used. Sometimes it's going to be just straight TCP with strings going back and forth. Sometimes it's going to be XML RPC. There's, there's a couple of different flavors, again, because each of those products were developed in silos uh, sometime in the past. In one or two distinct cases, it was even more troubling in that there were no network APIs. You only had native OS, and so we had to uh, put in a transport layer that would, so we'd have a tiny piece of code that would be running on that platform, again, using HTTP protocol, but then embedded with that would be the native OS calls to be able to do things with that product. So those obviously, depending on where your situation is, it's, it's either, it's more or less difficult as it goes along. Uh, we do have, uh, we're also doing web services uh, interfaces to Angular. So we have a legacy product that uses web services in our Angular 2 app. Uh, we found some JavaScript code where it'll read WSDL. Uh, we found some code to read WSDL, uh, generate uh, generate all the JavaScript for it so that we don't have Oh, to- yeah, you're talking like web services like that. I, I, I was thinking the more generic term, but I remember that protocol back from back in the day that .NET was big on for a little while. Yeah. Uh, soap and uh, uh, soap envelopes and XML and all that stuff. You know, it was a hot thing at the time. I mean, so so you've got uh, uh, you know it's it's now a generation or two back, but you don't you don't get to turn around and rewrite all your code just because it's not the latest protocol. So so anyhow, we've got that going. So uh, we we've got a variety of things, but when it gets to when at a certain point, it makes no sense to do a lot of protocol handling and protocol conversions inside of Angular, and that's when um, uh, a middle layer is called for, especially if you want to integrate things. And so once we integrate it, then we're looking at having a rules engine, a data cache, and things like that. It just opens up a lot more opportunities for us, and it helps keep the, the user interface code pretty lightweight. We're going to take a quick break to hear about ThoughtRam. ThoughtRam. Extend your memory. Want to get up and running with the Angular framework, but don't have the time to read through all the documentation and tutorials on the internet? ThoughtRam's Angular Masterclass may be perfect for you. Check it out today at thoughtram.io forward slash training. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. That's one thing that makes uh, GraphQL pretty exciting is the ability to implement that as that middle tier and strap that on to uh, all these legacy things that you have and expose that to the client. You, you read my mind because actually what I was just thinking about is the million dollar idea is to build an open source uh, le- a legacy mainframe adapter for GraphQL, uh, which I know that you would want to do, right, Justin? Yeah, somebody should do that. <laughs> open source in the enterprise? Does that exist? It, it does. It does. And I will tell you that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was a hard thing to do. And uh, now it's, it's coming, kind of becoming a, uh, um, a, a standard. And we uh, now internally, again, you know, we're a software company. We have to be very careful about licensing and so forth. So we have an approval process that we go through to use a piece of open, uh, open source code 
But uh, yeah, we do it. In fact, we're now starting to be on GitHub, and uh, we will actually looking at making some contributions to open source. So I would say, at least from our standpoint, as the enterprise software vendor, it's it's a changing world. Yeah, that was my next question. You know, what what you know, are you guys doing pull requests and things like that back to these projects? And you know, how are you guys handling that? It's really on a product team by product team basis what they want to do, and so I would have to say. It's probably if, if if there's an individual in the team that's excited and wants to make contributions back, and if the contribution, let's say, doesn't expose anything that's a proprietary intellectual intellectual property or something like that, um, they'll do that. It's not a it's not a I got to be honest. It's not like a full corporate goal to do that, but we want to be a good player too. And so, um, one of our hopes and one of my motivating uh, things for my team is that we're going to develop some components that are good enough that we can, we can go ahead and contribute those out. When are those coming? <laughs> <laughs> I got to get my product out the door first. So do you guys have a channel set up for that? Like, did you guys go through and say, okay, look, we're going to have a, you know, company protocol for, uh, if you have something that you want to open source, go through this channel, you know, fill out this document sort of thing, or is it still kind of like, like if I, if we were to look and say, we want to do that at our company and we're growing. And, and so what would be our procedure for making sure that we just don't have people nilly willy putting stuff out there. They can go through and, but we can tell them, you know, Hey, you have an idea, you have some piece that you think you want to go through. Here's the channel you go through to make sure that you're not exposing anything and that we're good to go from a business standpoint doing that. We actually developed an in-house application for just doing just that. And so um, let's say I'm going to have a, I know that I'm working on a project. My product's going to go out the door next year, six months from now. I've got some time, time frame, and I can go to this application, and my, products, my product line is already defined. I pull up and say, I'm going to do this product. Here's my next version, and I'm going to use, and then I can go, then I can search for open source components and say, I'm going to use this, I'm going to use that, I'm going to use this. We'll pull those lists if it's already been used and it's already gone through the approval process. It's right there. If not, um, it goes into a queue to one of the senior architects, maybe someone legal. They'll review it and then send a message back to me that it's approved. And and we actually, um, before we can actually release a product to the field, to, we call it general availability when it's when all of our customers can download and do it. We have uh, basically some checklists of things that we have to have in place you know, documentation, um, escrow, source escrow uh, taken care of, and then open source approval that all these things are here and that's been taken care of and uh, we're, we're covered in that respect. So it uh, the first couple of generations when everything was getting defined and all that, it was a lot more work, but now that it's in place, it, it really makes life a lot easier for us. The other way that, um, and, and I'm going to plug this concept, the other way that it comes in handy for us is if there is a vulnerability, like a security vulnerability, oh, Heartbleed in, uh, in OpenSSL, quick, which one of our products, how many of our products are using this particular piece? And so we, our security team does like a reverse lookup to say, okay, these guys, these guys here, you need to address these fixes and pick up these patches and so forth like that. So there's, it's, it's a lot of work, it's a pain, developers will grumble, but uh, it really pays off organizationally. Did you have to be on a checklist to, to come on the call? <laughs> I did have to get approval. <laughs> what, what about, uh, you know, uh, are you guys maintaining a, a private fork of Angular? You know, maybe you need to fix a bug or something. We have not done that. We have entertained that. And uh, 
we we have a um, I think Jeff mentioned a little bit earlier we have a, an issue with the router and um, and we think there's going to be a, uh, we have a request that's being worked that will address that but uh, one of the things that hurts us is that um, if you have a route state change then components get destroyed and released and we have some incredibly complex user interfaces with multiple graphs and scroll bars and to be able to recreate that and make it look good exactly where the user was at that particular point is a, is a pretty daunting task. And so that's, that's, that's the piece we're campaigning for. It, go ahead. I have a real quick question. Going back to that security audit, I think I squeezed the question in there. Um, I was curious how that process maps into the idea of handling uh, dependencies. Um, are your security audits walking down the dependency tree? Uh, to check the security on not just the dependency. So maybe you have, um, with the case of Angular, it's dependent upon RxJS, and it's uh, dependent upon ZoneJS. Is it walking down that dependency tree as well, or is it just uh, at the service level and hoping that that check is sufficient? It's about halfway in between. It's There's another level or two in there. It's probably not as comprehensive as as, as we would desire. Okay. I, I think it may change over time because I think it's going to get more and more important, but um, that, that's where we are now. It is really awesome that you guys are, are uh, taking those kind of progressive steps. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen much movement along the, that in the enterprise, uh, so it is really awesome you've gotten this far. So hopefully you can keep keep going further. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And again, we're um, that helps. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, new. When are you guys going to open source your stuff? Uh, cur- currently, we have no no plans to do that right now. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Shocked. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I we have an avenue um, to do that, but I haven't engaged in that. Wait, there there actually is like there's a process that you could follow. Like other people within the Wells Fargo organization are open sourcing some stuff. I, I think there's some obscure form somewhere in in the form repository that you have to start with, but I think there is a process. I know there's a process to submit your, you know, like if you have an interesting problem, submit like a white paper. Um, and I, I'm sure you'd follow a similar kind of process. But do you have to worry about dependencies then, like um, to the degree that, uh, like for uh, open, I mean, people that aren't in larger organizations, when you're building a web app, it's very normal to just npm install like everything willy nilly. So, do you actually uh, have to like think with the heart about that and do some type of process to make sure that the things you're bringing in? Uh, um, yeah, actually, we do get audited on the npm install stuff, and they do check our source code. So, um, you know, there's like uh, code scanners that run throughout our TFS tree and and check what we are. Uh, what, what other third-party or open-source libraries uh, we are using. And, and then auditors come by and also ask us to. So there is a process where they uh, do their checking. And then um, we have our security. Same thing, we have a security uh, suite here that we have to run our code through, and it will involve, uh, inform of this, of this any um, software vulnerabilities that we have to address. So yeah, she, does, does this means that when you want to use, uh, let's say, a date, a date picker, um, it would take like one month 
to get approval for li for library, and you just uh, decide to code it yourself because it's too painful to to add an external lib, or or is it still um, valuable to use something external? Um, we are we can we still have some freedom and and uh, it's more of a we kind of pick what we want and then the the, the scanner tools or the security team will run an audit and they'll tell us later if we have to change some stuff. And so we have some flexibility there in, in exploring newer technologies. So it's not as restrictive as we want to use a you know, UI date picker and then we have a three month process with like 17 meetings in the middle. We, we don't have it like that. That would really, really bad. Okay. We are near the top of the show, so I want to make sure we get to our picks. I know some people have a hard stop at the top of the hour, um, but I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of uh, you know, some of these topics. So I'm sure we'll have a round two uh, you know, in a couple of months with some stuff we didn't get to today. Um, but let's get to picks. And actually, Newt, let's start off with you, because I, I know you do have a hard stop here. I actually haven't thought of any right now. Can you? Can you come yeah, back to me? Start I'll, I'll, I'll start going back to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Austin. You're muted. Yeah, so um, I was just pulling up my picks. <laughs> you caught us all off guard, Jeff. Um, here they are. So... Um, AOT is coming in uh, Angular Upgrade. I saw a tweet from uh, Rob, and uh, it looks like there's a pull request out there for that, and it's getting merged. So that is super awesome. I know some of you guys talked about using, you know, upgrading. Um, async await debugging, it's not related to Angular necessarily, but it landed in Chrome earlier this week, and that is really terrible. Prior to that, it would kind of just jump all around. Um, so that's super nice. You know, if you're using async await with TypeScript and stuff like that, that's really good. And um, I did a talk pretty recently on Angular 2 and 3.js with WebGL or WebVR. And that is, uh, that's out there. I wanted to share that with the guy or with you guys. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting dive into, you know, how to use, you know, experimenting with Angular 2 and, and you know, how to use that interrupt with WebGL. That's it. Cool. Thanks, Austin. Uh, Justin. Yeah, so uh, Lucas Rubicki put out an observable cheat sheet the other day. It's a pretty cool breakdown for getting into observables and stuff. Uh, you can find that on his uh, blog site, onehungrymind.com. And then uh, GraphQL Summit is tomorrow uh, up in San Francisco. Uh, it's a one-day um, attending that. And hopefully they'll have some of the videos post, posted afterwards so everybody else could watch it. But I'm looking forward to that. Your goal is to find someone who's implemented GraphQL with a mainframe. Right? I want to see it. It is physically possible. It's, uh, it would be a great experiment to see. So. Okay, I'm going to add, add that to my list of questions. So I have a couple questions, and that will be one I'll try and find an answer to. Okay, good, good. Uh, Newt, where are you at? Did you got something, or should I circle back around to you next week? Out. Um, well, I don't have anything tech-wise, uh, but
But um, uh, as Jeff said, that I am an ultra runner, and uh, the Hard Rock 100 lottery is on right now, and that's one of the toughest races in the nation. And so um, hopefully I can be selected to run that race. Um, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool uh, from ultra runner standpoint. How many, mi- how many miles is that race? That's 100 miles, um, and it's all above 9,000 feet, and you get up to 14,000 feet several times in the Colorado Rockies. Training must be incredible. Sorry? Training must be incredibly difficult to, to be able to get used to that. Yeah, so, it, it's a lot of mileage and a lot of uh, mountain running. Did you buy one of those, uh, what is it, humidor that uh, you get? Like, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any uh, resources to, to get one of those. All right, we're going to have uh, another Angular Air show just on your, your, your running here. Like, I, I'm fascinated to know, like, how, how the heck this actually works. Like, it's it just mind-blowing to me. 100 miles is like, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this later. <laughs> uh, thanks, Newt. I'm going to get kicked out of the room, guys. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk, talk to you later. Um, who, how about you? Um, yeah, so kind of circling back to um, Austin, he mentioned async await. Um, Node 7 has async await as well, and I believe that just came out today, I think, the, the release notes for that. And um, also I wanted to plug um, the Atlanta Angular JS meetup. Um, the next meeting is Wednesday, November the 16th at 7 p.m., and so they do, a lot of, um, they do a lot of lightning talks, and they usually have, like, kind of a guests in the community kind of come out and give kind of workshops and things of that nature. So if you're in the southeast, that's worth checking out. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, Mike, how about you? Yeah, I'm going conference heavy here with my picks. Uh, so right now, NG Europe's going on. Uh, you can catch the live stream. I think today's stream is over, being that it's in Paris. Um, but check out the live stream tomorrow. Uh, is, it, is it just me? Uh, sorry to get you. But no, no, you're good. Just me or NG Europe was like, uh, I don't know. I was, I was surprised that it was already NG Europe. I was like, wait, that, that's NG Europe now. I was like in in Angular Connect last month, and I don't know. I just missed out on the first about. Yeah. It's it's not snuck up on you. Yeah, yeah. I was streaming some of the uh, talks uh, this morning. Was kind of happy with what I was saying. Um, look forward to seeing what's coming up tomorrow too. Might try and wake up early or something to catch a few more of them. Um, also, speaking of conferences, um, DevFest Florida. Speaking of the Southeast, is uh, the no- first weekend in November. I'll be speaking down there. Um, and then if you're really interested in uh, conferences coming up, uh, NG Cruise is coming up. It's actually going to be a conference on a cruise line uh, heading out of Miami, Florida, which will be interesting. Uh, one co- non-conference related pick um, is a tool. It's a Git uh, user interface uh, with a GUI. It's a really nice, uh, sharp-looking uh, user interface uh, called Git Kraken. Uh, love the name as well. Uh, so go check that out uh, as a different alternative uh, to be able to visualize your uh, Git repos. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Gary? Um, you'll have to get back with me. I've been too absorbed looking at the other tips and picks in front of me. Oh. <laughs> sure. Uh, Olivier? Um, so, yeah, uh, I've been, uh, I've, since we released uh, our website in Angular 2, I had some time to fix bugs and now some time to refactor. And um, we had a problem with performance. Uh, and since we had to rush at the end, I didn't uh, have time before to look at it. And 
I finally uh, used the change detection strategy uh, named Unpush, and I've been amazed by how it improves performance in our application. Um, our application was uh, fluid, fluid in Chrome, but in Internet Explorer it was laggy, uh, and in Firefox we, we could see some drops as well. So since we, we used Unpush, uh, we had a reduction of like 100% in CPU usage. And it's amazing. Uh, even Internet Explorer is fluid now. So if you've never tried it, uh, and if your code is uh, Angular 2 compliant, uh, you shouldn't have any problem implementing this. Um, you should do it. Uh, my other pick is uh, NG Belgium, which is uh, in two weeks. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, maybe do something for Angular as well. Um, so if someone is is going uh, to Belgium, uh, meet me there. And um, I think they still have a few tickets, so definitely check it out. Uh, the lineup is really great. That's it. Cool. Thanks, Olivier. And uh, for myself, um, so I have two picks. One that's actually um, relevant to some of the stuff that we talked about today, actually. Uh, there is a uh, node security group, nodesecurity.io. And basically, they have, uh, I mean, a couple different services, but two things that are, you know, relevant, especially for people, uh, you know, in enterprise environments. Uh, one, uh, like we talked about the issue with bringing in all the, these different dependencies and not knowing um, particular dependency has a particular security violation or anything like that. So one thing the no security group offers is sort of that um, built-in ability to automatically check to make sure, like they, they've rated every, uh, or maybe not every, but most um, NPM uh, dependencies out there and they continue to like work on that. And then they'll... they'll <laughs> you caught us all off guard, Jeff. Um, here they are. So um, AOT is coming in uh, Angular Upgrade. I saw a tweet from uh, Rob, and uh, it looks like there's a pull request out there for that, and it's getting merged. So that is super awesome. I know some of you guys talked about using, you know, upgrading. Um, async await debugging, it's not related to Angular necessarily, but it landed in Chrome earlier this week, and that is really terrible prior to that. It would kind of just jump all around. Um, so that's super nice. You know, if you're using async await with TypeScript and stuff like that, that's really good. And um, I did a talk pretty recently on Angular 2 and 3.js with WebGL or WebVR. And that is, uh, that's out there. I wanted to share that with the guy or with you guys. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting dive into, you know, how to use, you know, experimenting with Angular 2 and, and you know, how to use that interrupt with WebGL. That's it. Cool. Thanks, Austin. Uh, Justin. Yeah, so uh, Lucas Rubicki put out an observable cheat sheet the other day. It's a pretty cool breakdown for getting into observables and stuff. Uh, you can find that on his uh, blog site, onehungrymind.com. And then uh, GraphQL Summit is tomorrow uh, up in San Francisco. Uh, it's a one-day um, 
attending that. And hopefully they'll have some the videos post, posted afterwards so everybody else could watch it. But I'm looking forward to that. Your goal is to find someone who's implemented GraphQL with a mainframe. I, I want to see it. It is physically possible. It's uh, It would be a great experiment to see. So. Okay, I'm going to add, add that to my list of questions. So I have a couple of questions, and that will be one I'll try and find okay. the answer to. Good, good. Uh, Newt, where are you at? Did you got something, or should I circle back around to you next week? No, um, well, I don't have anything tech-wise, uh, but um, uh, as Jeff said, that I, I'm an ultra runner, and uh, the Hard Rock 100 lottery is on right now, and that's one of the toughest races in the nation. And so um, hopefully I can be selected to run that race.